Well, this morning I'm about to do something that I have never, ever done as a pastor. I'm going to give a sermon on tithing. It's been 10 years, and I've never done this. And I'll confess to you a couple of reasons why. First of all is plain and sheer cowardice. Telling people what to do with their money is, uh, well, do you appreciate that? When someone comes up and says, hey, you're using your money wrong. I remember when I was growing up, uh, I was, uh, my favorite thing, my favorite place to stop was Dairy Queen. And I have to tell you, we used to have a Dairy Queen here in the Visalia Mall, uh, and it closed a number of years ago, and I'm still sad about that. But I remember uh, we would drive by this Dairy Queen. And every time I realized we we're going to drive by Dairy Queen, you know, I'd be in the back with my fingers crossed and my toes crossed. I'd be like, please, please, please I really want to go to Dairy Queen and eat, you know, eat at Dairy Queen. That's, you know, not eat. They have burgers. You don't go for the burgers, right? They're Dairy Queen, not Burger King. You might not go to Burger King for the burgers either. I don't know. But you go to Dairy Queen for the dairy, for the ice cream. And I'd always think to myself, you know, my dad makes a pretty good living or something along those lines. He can afford to take me to Dairy Queen. Why, why do we ever drive past Dairy Queen without stopping, right? That's maybe a pretty innocuous way of wishing that my dad used his money a little bit differently. But I'm sure because now I'm a parent and we drive by like A&W or something that serves ice cream. And I know my children all have their fingers and their toes crossed. Like, I hope we stop there. And if they said, Dad, you have to take us there for ice cream. Why, you make enough money that you can do that. I'd say, who do you think you are to tell me that I have to spend money on you at A&W or at Foster's Freeze or any other place every time? We drive by. But in, in this cultural moment, we actually really like telling people what to do with their money, don't we? Societally, we really like to do that. We look at the, the ultra-rich, and oh man, we have some criticisms for them, don't we? And you know what? Some of them might even be justified sorts of criticisms. I'm not sure anyone needs a $5 billion mega yacht, and yet people have those. But isn't the easiest thing in the world to look at other people and say, Gosh, I really don't like the way you spend your money without ever once evaluating what we do with ours. This is why I'm going to apologize to you for never preaching a sermon on tithing and on giving to the church. Because the Bible has something to say about it. And I can't neglect that. Because it's part of our discipleship as followers of Jesus. What do we do with our money? Are there places in our lives where Jesus says, you know what, I really don't want that part. It's kind of gross. Like money, ick. I don't want to deal with that. No, Jesus says a lot, a lot about money. And my goal here this morning is not to make sure that you know what you're doing wrong. It's not to make you feel guilty, and it is not that we increase the church budget by 10% by the end of the day. I'm not going to ask you to make a pledge or anything like that at the end. This is not part of a stewardship drive. This is just about what does God care about with our money. The other reason I'm going to preach this is because people have come to this church, and they've never been part of a church before, and they've said, Pastor, what should I give? And you know what I said? I said, Whatever your heart leads you to give, which sounds scriptural, but is just a cop-out in a lot of ways. Because God asks more of us than just whatever our heart wants. 
Let me, I'm going to get to that and explain a couple of things. But I, I've got those two passages for us this morning. And I want to start in the Old Testament with the book of Nehemiah. Now, the book of Nehemiah tells us about how the, the people of Israel, they'd been in exile in Babylon and then in Persia for 70 years, and they've now returned to the land. And they've, they've rebuilt the temple, but things aren't really right in, in Israel yet. They're still sort of figuring out what does it mean that we're, we're back in the land. And part of what it means is they said, well, we need to recommit to this covenant relationship that we have with our God. We need to go back before God and say, hey, we're going to keep our side of the agreement here. And so they have this whole covenant renewal ceremony, and it covers all of these different sorts of things. Uh, and uh, one of the things it covers is what do we do with our money? Because God has required certain tithes and offerings from us, and we today are going to commit to keeping those. So Nehemiah describes, if it was kind of hard to, to stick with it the whole time, wasn't it? Because it's like, you shall give of this thing and that thing and the other thing and this thing and that thing and the other thing and just on and on and on. And what Nehemiah is really saying with the people is, we're going to take everything we own and give to you out of that God. You own at least a portion of everything that we have. See, Nehemiah was probably thinking of Leviticus chapter 27, uh, among other places, but certainly Leviticus uh, chapter 27, beginning in verse 30, where God starts to describe, hey, as far as, and keep in mind, people didn't deal primarily in money back then so much as in assets, right? They're the product of their harvest in an agrarian society. Their animals, those sorts of things were how they talked about their wealth. And then in Leviticus 27, verse 30, it says, uh, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Whoever would redeem any of their tithe must add a fifth to the value of it, right? So you've got, let's say you are an olive farmer back in the day, and you bring in your olive harvest. And you say, ooh, I want to keep some of those olives to myself. So what I need to do is uh, add 20% onto the value of the olives that I'm keeping for myself and pay that to the temple. Pay that to God. It says, every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. No one may pick out the good from the bad or make any substitution as far as the animals goes. If anyone does make a substitution, both the animal and its substitute become holy and cannot be redeemed. You catch that? He says, if when you're counting your animals, you know, they're all going through the gate and every tenth one, you just every tenth one, right? You're not choosing the good or the bad ones. Just every tenth one you set aside and you say, no, no, no. Oh, that's a really good one. I'm going to trade, you know, one of my animals for this animal. God says, nope, now you owe me both animals. It's every tenth one, okay? This is how it's going to work. Why does God say this? Why does God say 10% of all of your assets, of all of your income at the end of the year belongs to me? Well, it's because it really does belong to him. Actually, 100% of all of it belongs to him. Tell me, uh, did any of us here, like, make the sheep? No, we may have bred the sheep. We didn't make them. Did we? Did we give him the ability? I mean, aren't, isn't life amazing? 
we have in ourselves, I was watching a stand-up comedy sketch last night, and he was talking, uh, the comedian was talking about how women have babies. He says, you ever stop to think about this? They can grow a person inside of them. It's incredible. And then when that person is born, they can use their body to feed that person. Right? Who did that? Who made it that way? It was, it was God himself. What are you made out of? Do you own the stuff that you were made out of? No, God made it. He created it. Everything in this world came from God's act of creation. And we know in our society, right, if you make it, you put a copyright on it, you file a patent on it, and it's yours. And people can't go around using it without your permission. Did you know, and I think this is a good thing, when we sing songs together, some songs are just, they're, they're uncopyrighted. Like hymns, they're so old, no one owns them anymore. But the, the modern music that we sing, they are, those things are copyrighted, and we pay a subscription fee to a company called uh, CCLI, Christian Copyright and Licensing International, and every, we sing and we report what we sing, and that reporting goes and they distribute money to the artists as it goes. Because when you make something, you own it. And you deserve some sort of compensation for it. And that's what Nehemiah is bringing out. He's saying, remember, God made all this stuff. He owns it. It belongs to him. And he could require 100% of you, but he only requires 10%. And then what's that 10% actually for? What does God do with it? Because you know, God doesn't need a whole bunch of sheep. God doesn't need a whole bunch of money, does he? You know, you use money up in heaven... I don't know what they do for food or if they need food up in heaven, but he doesn't need our sheep or cows or fish or anything like that. So what was the tithe? And that tithe, that word literally means more or less 10%. It's related to the word for the number 10. What does God need it all for? Well, there were three sorts of tithes. In Leviticus 27, which we just read, there was the general tithe, just 10% of everything that you get. And there was a sense of we're going to use this for our, our worship life and our fellowship together because they'd take that sort of stuff out to the temple. They'd use it to support the temple operations. But a portion of the tithe, which this is described in more detail in Deuteronomy chapter 14, you carry it with you to the temple from wherever you are, you sit down together at the temple and you eat your tithe in the presence of God. It's for fellowship with God and with each other. There's that general tithe which helps support the activity of the temple. There's the tithe for temple fellowship and there's a triannual, or I'm sorry, triennial. I had to look up the difference this week between triannual and triennial. Triannual means three times a year. Triennial means every third year. There, you learned something. Isn't this great? There's the triennial tithe for the poor. Instead of taking that one to the temple, you sit down in your town together with the poor and with the Levites, and you have a big feast. It was for fellowship and worship together. These three sorts of tithes. Now, on top of the tithes, there were all sorts of other things. You brought offerings to the temple for sin and for guilt and for peace and for thanks. 
You paid a, a temple tax on top of all of these things. I don't know. Someone's tried. It, actually, the Old Testament's really not clear enough that we can come up with an exact figure for how much the Israelites were expected to bring out of their income to the temple. But I've heard figures around the 30% range. It's pretty spectacular, isn't it? And I think that this model of what we do with our own resources is helpful for us today. Jesus, uh, actually, he did speak about the tithe in the Gospels. In Matthew uh, chapter 23, verse 23, Jesus uh, says this in speaking to the Pharisees. Woe to you. Oh, no, he starts off with a woe. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, right? They're, they're exacting. They are thoughtful. They, they trace down all of their assets. So they're giving even a tithe out of their spices to God. You are amazing tithers, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former, Jesus says. Agus tells us, first of all, that, that the money that we bring to the church is not the value that Jesus assigns to us. You get that? I want to be so clear on this. If you bring a little, if you bring a lot, it doesn't impact whether or not Jesus considers you part of his family. It doesn't impact how glad Jesus is to have you as part of his family. But he does say, don't neglect the tithe. He, he supports the tithe. He says, you ought to do this. This is a good thing to do. We're going to come back to that in, in a few minutes. But I think I, there's actually very little in the New Testament that talks about the tithe. I think that the reason is that people didn't need to be reminded they knew what the expectation was, and they just went and did it. I think this is supported by the fact that in the Didache, a late 1st or early 2nd century Christian manual for worship, it says this, Every first fruit, then, of the produce of the wine vat and of the fresh threshing floor of the oxen and sheep, you shall take and give as the first fruits to the prophets, for they are your chief priests. Remember, uh, the early church exercised the gift of prophecy quite a bit. But if you have not a prophet, then give them to the poor. So that 10% belongs to God. Do what he cares about with it. The early church definitely practiced this. Now, I think the hardest thing when we hear that God says, hey, you're going to start the way I want you to start with your money, with your resources, is by giving the first 10% to me. The reason this is hard I was part of a men's Bible study uh, when I was a banker, a fresh-faced banker, 23 and 24. And in, my, in this men's Bible study, we met in downtown Seattle. And the people who were part of this, there was a lawyer, there was a chief operating officer, there was an, a bank executive, there was a, an electrical engineer, there was the CEO of a local iBank run by the Lions Club. And then there was me, I was a teller felt a little out of place 
And we talked one day about, well, what do we give? What does God want of us, and how do we respond? And we had a really good conversation. And, and there are people who made some great observations. There was, we said, well, do, do we give before tax or after tax? Maybe we're getting a little pharisaical here. But I love one of, one of the people responded by saying, well, my accountant's a Christian. And every year when it, we, it comes to how much do you want to give, he says, would you like a before tax or after tax blessing from the Lord this year? Which I have never forgotten. But the other thing that I've never forgotten is one of the gentlemen in that group said, I really struggle to pay the tithe. And it's not because I can't afford it. This was a C-level executive making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. He said, it's because when it comes down to it, every month or however often when I need to write that check or make that payment, it is a big check. And it's mine. Is there anyone here who can relate to that? Because I can't. It's mine. What do you mean? You want some of my money. <laughs> what? It's mine. And it's hard to let go of. I just want to acknowledge that. So, when it's hard to do, why do we do it anyway? Well, we do it, first of all, because God says so. But secondly, we give the tithe and even beyond because it's a joy to give. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This is the second uh, passage that Mary read for us this morning. This is the one that we really like, right? The one that says the Lord loves a cheerful giver. But if you notice, I put some more context on that for us this morning. And I know it may have been hard to follow along with all of it. But here, the Apostle Paul is raising money from Christians throughout the Roman Empire to take, so that he can take it back to Jerusalem, where there's a famine and where the church is really being persecuted, so he can meet needs. And he's, Paul is so excited. This is one of the great initiatives of his life. And he's so excited about it because these are his, his friends and his family members and his spiritual ancestors by blood. And he cares about them deeply. But he's also excited because he knows that it's hard to be a church that has Jews and Gentiles in it because they don't naturally get along. There are some racial tensions that exist there. And so Paul says, if we, the, the Gentile church and, and the people who are serving the Gentile church, make it a point to serve the Jewish church, then we are going to help build relationship with each other. We're going to get along better with each other. So he's really excited about this ministry that he's doing. And Paul's already been to Corinth, and then he went to a bunch of other churches, and he raised money in all these places. Then he says, man, we raised so much money in these other places. It's incredible. And you guys, I'm going to ask you to give again because I want you to have that opportunity. And he gives him a whole bunch of reasons exactly why he's doing this. But then he says, when you consider how much to give, here's how you should do it. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9. I thought chapter 6 looked wrong here. Beginning in verse 6. He says, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. He says, don't make it all about the pressure that's on you to live up to something, but make a decision in your heart to give generously because that is worth it. 
And then he says, for God loves a cheerful giver. So here's the big question in my mind. Uh, Do we only give if we're really cheerful about it? Well, uh, maybe to be a little bit too blunt to start with, do you only not murder because you're cheerful about it? I mean, God actually said give, right? But what he's saying is you don't have to give out of the hardness of your heart and solely because it is a command and a responsibility. Folks, is your life better because you go around not murdering people? Yeah, right? You're not in jail. Like That's number one. You haven't broken a bunch of relationships with people. Your conscience is not tormented. Your life is better because you followed God's commands. Now, is it sometimes hard not to murder people? Well, maybe that's, maybe that's kind of an extreme example. But is your life sometimes hard to treat people right? Is it sometimes difficult to do that? In those moments, do we say, oh, God, this person's really making me so angry, and I can't be cheerful about treating them well, so I'm going to treat them badly. I don't want to be inauthentic before you in, in this moment. Like pretending that I'm, I don't want to treat them badly when really I do want to treat them badly. No, I mean, that, that's nonsense. We know it right off the bat. And I think that when we hear God saying uh, that he loves a cheerful giver, when we interpret that as license, well, I'm not feeling cheerful about it, so I'm not going to give, then I think that has more to do with our wanting to not give than the kind of person God wants us to be kind of person God is making us to be. How do we give cheerfully? Not by waiting until we're cheerful. Remember, Jesus said, don't neglect the tithe. Instead, we cultivate cheerful giving through faith by remembering, first of all, where our resources have come from. All that I have came from God, and it's a joy to give back to him. By remembering that God who has provided once will provide again. Whoever sows sparingly, right out of scripture, will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. I think Paul's promising, if you put $100 in the offering plate today, God will give you 1,000 tomorrow. Uh, I've tested it, and the answer is no. (laughs) But I think instead... What Paul is telling us is you will receive something from the Lord in return. Whether it's joy and gladness, whether it's the satisfaction of having contributed to something positive in the life of your church or in the life of others, you will receive something good back. And that's why we have Proverbs like, it is better to give than to receive. I think the other thing that leads us toward cheerful giving, remembering where our resources have come from, remembering that God who has provided once will provide again, and remembering that giving is an act of worship. God, you deserve this. Here is a tangible thing. You know, you know, my life, when I was uh, at my last church serving as an intern, uh, my, I remember talking to my pastor there once, and, and I said, well, what do you do on your day off? He says, I garden. I said, that sounds awful. You've made a terrible choice. It's your day off. Right? Do something you'll enjoy. He says, oh, no. Oh, no, I enjoy it. Because throughout my whole week, I'm doing things where the results are intangible. 
I'm ministering to people, and I don't know what the final result is going to be. I'm building into people, and I don't know if they'll be changed or transformed. When I garden, I mow the lawn, and it's mowed. (laughs) The result is tangible. There's something about using our money in that tangible way that I think gives us that sense. I am really, you know, sometimes I'm curious, is this really a a service to God? Am I really, you know, blessing God through this thing? Money is crass in a lot of ways. And part of the reason it's crass is because it can change hands the way that it does. I'm letting this go for myself and I'm giving it to God instead. And God, I just gave you 10% of my life in worship. 10% of my resources in worship. Finally, you can cultivate cheerful giving through faith by considering the good achieved by giving. This really makes a difference in the ministry of my church, whether it's, you know, we got stuff to put the communion things in on Sunday morning, which is maybe the less important thing, or I am empowering the ministry of this place to introduce people to Jesus Christ as we go out, as we you know, invite people to dinner, as we do all of these things. And we do this, this is really important, we consider the good achieved by giving without pride, Right? Remembering that it's God who gives the final result, not the money. You know, we could spend a million dollars on Lemon Cove and not change a single life. Haven't you seen that happen? Haven't you seen companies throw money away, nonprofits and churches throw money away on things that that didn't matter, that were ineffective, and that glorified no one but themselves? So we do this without pride, remembering that God is the one who ultimately gives the result, but that he is pleased to use our time and our talents and our treasure to do it as well. What are the errors we can make in giving? Well, the first one's obvious, and it's probably on the tip of all of our minds and tongues. Giving too little. Uh, I think that's why the tithe is a helpful command that God has given us. The tithe isn't make sure you don't give more than 10%, but it's why don't you start with 10% and see what happens next. Now, I recognize that for a number of us, if we were to give 10% of our income to the church, that would radically transform our finances. Some of us, maybe we don't even have 10% free. We don't have 10% of our income that is, is available to uh, just reorient or redirect in that way. So uh, if, if you want, and I, I think you should, incorporate the tithe into your life, take the time to reorganize your financial life. As I was preparing for the sermon this morning, I went and I looked, what do we make and how much are we giving? And I found I'm $25 short of 10% in my annual, I mean, my planned giving. And I went and made that adjustment. Now, I can, most of us could probably adjust $25 without too much trouble. But it did take some looking, and it may have taken some planning. Secondly, incorporate the tithe into your life with urgency. Not like, if it's not done tomorrow, God will hate me, God will not hate you. Or love you more based on how much you give. Jesus died for you before you gave anything. But do it with some urgency. Without saying, ah, someday. 
I'll get around to it. You know, my kids, they love to come up and, and ask me, oh, you know, can we do this, or will this happen, or, or something along those lines. You know what? The answer I like to give, most of all, and it's a bad answer, is maybe. How often do you think maybe means no, people listening in the pews? And my kids are starting to pick up on that. Like, they say, oh, Daddy, can we do this? Like, oh, maybe. And like, oh, right. <laughs> so have some urgency in addressing these sorts of things. Don't let your answer be maybe. Recognize that sometimes you may need help. God has not asked the tithe of any one of us so that we will have a harder financial life. God has not asked the tithe of any one of us to the point of not being able to put food on our tables, not being able to pay for the roof over our heads within some sort of reason, right? Recognize that sometimes the tithe will be a challenge. Maybe you'll make it up later. Maybe you won't make it up at all. But we're going to aim for that tithe. And then recognize the tithe is a beginning point, not an ending point. Uh, I actually have gone back and forth on whether I want to share this, but I'm going to do it. St. Augustine in the 4th and 5th century, in a commentary on that passage in Matthew where Jesus says, Pharisees, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Give the tithe, but don't, you know, make sure all the more you're doing justice and mercy and all these things. In his commentary on that passage, Augustine says this, Scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Quoting Matthew. The scribes and the Pharisees gave the tenth. How is it with you? Augustine asked his congregation. I'm deflecting to Augustine as much as I can here right now. Ask yourselves, consider what you do and what means you do it. How much you give, how much you leave for yourselves, what you spend on mercy, what you reserve for luxury. So then, let them distribute easily. Let them communicate. Let them lay up and store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may hold on eternal life. He says, are you holding this part of your life back from God? Why? Why? Is eternity not worth it? You have a much better, again, in Augustine's spirit, we have a much better hope than for a hundred bucks today or a thousand bucks today or a million dollars today or more, you know, Jeff Bezos money today. We have a much better hope than all of that. Are we saving for that hope, or are we saving for this life, where moth and rust destroys? The tithe is the beginning point, Augustine's pointing out. How much more? We have so much better to hope for than the Pharisees who gave the tithe. Let's live like it. Now, believe it or not, if the first error we can make in giving is giving too little, the second error we can make is giving too much. Did you expect to hear your pastor say that this morning? I don't mean when I say we could give too much, that we shouldn't give out of faith, right? I don't know how this is going to work out, but I really feel God calling me to give more than I expected or thought. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. I'm not saying we shouldn't give sacrificially. Instead, I mean sometimes we need to give. I mean, so, I mean that sometimes when we give, we do so without counting the cost. I've had a conversations with a number of folks here in town, uh, and especially folks who don't have a lot of money, tend to not understand how it works. And at the beginning of the month, when there's a lot of money in the bank, you know, the various fixed incomes have come in, 
that money tends to go really quickly. And I'm saying this without any sort of judgment, but to illustrate this point, I often hear, you know, I'm generous. I lend to my friends. Can you help me pay my rent this month? I say, no. But I can remind you to save to pay your rent in this case. Now, it doesn't mean we've never helped anyone pay rent or we would never help anyone pay rent or something like that. But if we are giving without consideration for what we owe, then we're not doing that right either. And finally, the third error we can make in giving is to give without joy. Not every gift will feel full of joy. Right? We know this. Doing the right thing isn't always full of joy. But joy always comes from doing the good thing, the right thing. And if joy isn't part of our giving life, then we need to go back to that bit about cheerful giving. Remember the giver. Remember the usefulness of the gift. Remember that the God who has provided once will provide again and use that as medicine. Now, uh, I thought a lot about this, and I want you to understand that this message today is not for, it's not targeted at anyone, just everyone. <laughs> it's for all of us, and that includes me. And I mentioned that I preached to myself, first of all, and I went back and I looked at our tithe, and I made that adjustment. I, I, want, you to, I want you to hear from me something about what we give so that you won't think me a hypocrite, so that I hopefully will have greater credibility in what I'm telling you today. And because, as your pastor, I ought to set the example. Uh, my family, our philosophy on giving is 10% of our pre-tax salary goes right back to the church every single month without fail. On top of that, we decided to give in three main other ways to a local organization concerned with poverty. And that, in our experience, has been love in the name of Christ of Tulare County, with whom our church has a relationship, to an international organization concerned with poverty. Uh, in our case, that's been World Vision. We've uh, supported one and now two children uh, through World Vision for over 20 years. Uh, we've actually gone to the point where children have grown up and we've adopted new children. You don't think it's been 20 years? I know that we haven't been married 20 years long, so... Yeah, that's the banker in me that can't do math. It's like 15. Yeah, I'll say 15. Thank you. To an international organization concerned with poverty. To the proclamation of the gospel. To our friends uh, Ian and Leslie Hawk at Moody Aviation, who train missionary pilots to go into the world. To a cause that we especially care about. In our case, that's education at Biola University. And in the case of each of these things, we have made meaningful commitments over long periods of time. And we encourage you to do the same thing. Now, you don't have to give to four different things. You don't have to give to a hundred different things. But we encourage you to see your tithe as the beginning of what you give. And to think of how else God is calling you to minister to the community and the people around you with the resources that he's given you. And the final thing that I'll say is... Uh, as far as the church goes, we begin with the 10%. And then when new needs or opportunities come up and we say we want to be a part of that, we give more. 
I, I don't want to put an exact number on it, but we give definitely in, in excess of 15% of our pre-tax income because we want a pre-tax blessing from the Lord, like that accountant said. And we have found it a joy. It definitely, we could use that money for other things. It's in our care. We could do something differently with it. But we have never, ever regretted giving to the church, giving to these different places, giving for the things that we care about and the things that God cares about. And I encourage you to do the same. If you want to have a conversation about this, because money's a difficult topic, I, I am available to you. Our elders are available to you. And here, here is the commitment I'm going to make. We'll have this conversation without reference to the church budget. I'm not going to come to you and, and say, we, we, we got to close this gap. and You have to close the gap. Actually, we ended last year in the black. Thank you. I'm also, by preaching on tithing, and I'm going so long this morning, I'm sorry, but by preaching on tithing, uh, I am not trying to say to the church, you've done a bad job. Not at all. Not at all. But I am trying to say this is in Scripture. I'm not going to avoid it any longer. I'm going to grow up. I'm going to have courage. I'm going to speak to you, to the best of my ability, what God says.